0: Hell is for hyphen, it's for December 2012, I am writer hyphen critic hyphen now screening in 1D at 12 frames per second, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, I'm writer hyphen director hyphen 48 frames per second,
1: coming at you like 70s video, Paul Anthony Nelson, <laughs> and our very special guest
2: with us today is... I am writer hyphen critic hyphen rival podcaster, mm. Richarity... And I'm really happy to be here.
0: This is great. Oh, yeah. uh, we're very excited to have you. Happy to have you.
2: Uh, don't take any of your secrets to the enemy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, well, I can't, I can't say anything more, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm chronicling everything. <laughs> should say, uh, the podcast that uh,
1: Rich hosts is uh, with Luke Buckmaster, who is another uh, hyphen its alumni, and me. it's called the Parallax Podcast, and you can find it on iTunes or um, its own website,
0: yeah? Uh, yeah, or on Crikey. Cool. It's on the cracky side too. The high-framed rated elephant in the room, or oliphant in the room. <laughs> the Hobbit, an unexpected journey. This has been a pretty divisive one. Strangely, yeah. Right Good. off the bat, strangely divisive. Well, devices, considering like, how
1: united most people were about Lord of the Rings and mm. kind of... There was a lot of instant classic kind of talk around that when it was out. And it's interesting that The Hobbit makes a lot of the same moves. It's, But it's been a lot more divisive and I'm, I'm upon seeing it the other day I'm not entirely sure why I think that it's look I think the Hobbit the book from, from, what, I've, from what I know because I've not actually read any of the Tolkien books don't stone me the film is a lot lighter than the Lord of the Rings it lacks a lot of it's thrust and a lot of it's weight but apparently that's the case with the books as well the Hobbit is written for younger readers and the Lord of the Rings is a lot more complex and there's a lot more there's a lot bigger issues at stake And, uh, you know, one's about the fate of the world and one's about the fate of a community. And so the fact that The Hobbit does have a rather gentle beginning and does take a while to kind of get into its zone kind of feels natural to me. I I feel like it's a film about a hobbit. It's about a gentle person and a gentle race. And, you know, and it's kind of nice that it starts light. And Because in the end, I think that the the wingnut team that Peter Jackson is, of course, the... uh, eminence Grease of is that it, are so good at building this world and pulling us into it and i just got completely enveloped in it and i just found it really charming and really sweet and then it suddenly kind of builds to a roar and i had a great time with this
2: i hated this film bam yeah so so let me explain to you why <laughs> maybe this film's been a bit divisive uh, so you you said that the lord of the rings had a different, a, a larger stakes mm. to it, you know. And the Lord of the Rings, it's three books, it's fifteen hundred pages. Yeah. The Hobbit, it's it's one book, it's three hundred pages, mm-hmm. and this first film in the projected trilogy is almost three hours long, and it spans the first six chapters of a three hundred page book. Um, you can feel that. You can feel. <laughs> a, See, it aim- didn't feel padded to me. It, uh, it, it felt aimless. Yeah. Because the book itself is already incredibly episodic it's a very different book to the Lord of the Rings and it's an episodic book it's about you know a bunch of guys going on a walk and stuff happens to them while they're walking but in terms of watching it as a film it just was it felt unstructured it felt lazy it felt tedious Um, nothing that happens in this first film means anything. It's all things that happen to the characters while they're walking. They'll they'll stumble across some trolls and have an interaction with them that lasts for 20 or 30 minutes.
1: But isn't it all a illustration of how dangerous Middle Earth is outside of the Shire?
2: it, it that you just the, walk the, along and shit just, just it, happens It, to it you? makes for a, a, a film that amounts to nothing. And I found it really boring and really arduous to, to experience. It was a really unpleasant experience for me watching this film. Wow. I... I Felt really unsettled by the end of it. I, I did not enjoy a moment. And and I dread the next two films. Oh, nice. I, I dread this playing
0: out for another six hours. I agree with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, and I actually genuinely mean that because a few months ago on this podcast we talked about how much the mood or the... the The atmosphere in a cinema, all these factors uh, uh, play into your perception of a film. Uh, Even then, even pushing that argument, as we did on the podcast, uh, I I don't think I understood the extent to which that is true. I saw the film twice on the same day. In the morning, I saw it in the 48 frames per second, and the evening at the 24. I booked them both in long before I knew what the film was like. The morning one was arduous. Um, that was the one you were uh, at, Rich. that was the one I was at, yeah. I found myself getting frustrated at the length that things were taking on screen and just came out of it completely deflated. When I saw it in the evening, it was basically the opposite experience and the frame rate, I guarantee, had nothing to do with it, although I do want to talk about the differences between them. The mood was completely different. i I might have been in a different place. It was like... It was a different film. It was like somebody said, Here, watch this, watch this film called Mr. Deeds, and in the morning they show you the Adam Sandler one. And then in the evening they say, wanna watch it again? That's oh, alright, I found the Gary Cooper one. And it was that different. It was honestly like a completely different film. Nothing felt boring or slow to me. I am very confused at the moment because I have these two It's films playing in my head that are completely Mm -hmm. different and one I love and one I dislike. It's very Gollum Smeagol. We like shit. We don't like (laughs) (laughs) shit. And that that said, Riddles in the Dark, which is one of my favourite pieces of writing ever, was just magnificent, like the depiction. Yeah, and I actually found this in both both screens. Yeah, we, yeah. I love how
1: we. I love how since I've heard that this yeah this sequence has a title "Riddles in the Dark," like it's known as this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I, yeah, I just found it was a fascinating. sequence. you almost feel the energy when Goth, Gollum comes in the room. How excited everyone gets because mm. everyone loves this character so much, and the, and the, the CG is just. I mean. I'm not a CG fan generally, but for Gollum, there's some serious sorcery at work. Like, Mm. he just seems like a physical tactile
0: being. You can't look away from his face. No! So, it's expressive, which CGI usually But it feels
1: like there's, you know, there's flesh and bone and viscera Mm. and under there. Mm. But,
2: yeah. um... Well, I I think, since you've seen it in both 48 and 24... (laughs) Because I've only seen it in 48 frames a second. And and I've only seen it in 24. You've only seen it in 24? Mm. Wow, okay. Well, I... See, I didn't mind the forty-eight frames a second. I know that a lot of people are railing against it, and it does have a, a really strange HD video vibe to it. It it does look like a TV production. Some of the village scenes reminded me of um, episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation or something. Yeah. where you're watching kind of those villages on yeah. a distant planet. It's
1: because it because it, it shows a lot of the makeup and effects yeah, and stuff it's, up it's, as well. It's, doesn't
2: it's it? It's not complimentary to um a film like this, and I think it'll take time for the technicians to, to change the way that they light and the way that they make stuff to to be more suited to this medium. But I, I didn't mind it at all, mm. and, and I found the clarity
0: of the 3D so greatly improved by the high frame rate what? that it was amazing to me. I, yeah. I agree with that, and that really makes us unrepresentative of everybody else who, who, who dislikes it because there was... Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way I've been saying since the... Introduction of HDTVs, uh, which to me immediately looked like video turned film into this horrible video look. And so I don't know whether because of that for years I've grown accustomed to it. So now I'm seeing it, but I'm seeing it done really well. I I think for me the the biggest thing is, uh, in Lord of the Rings during that um, huge... Uh, prologue. Mm. It gets really jarring when when the camera uh, swoops over the Elvish army, And uh, to the extent that it's given me a headache sometimes when I've watched it. There was none of that in this film. It was so clear, particularly during those those big those big battles. Did it did it feel more like Lord of the Rings seeing it in twenty four? Did it feel more connected to those
2: yeah, other movies? Because it felt so. really disconnected seeing it. So there's the thing, one.
1: I I think I can't help but think the, the forty eight had a difference because I saw it and I thought, This looked like, yeah, this is back to what this is what wingnut do really well. They you know, the production values are so incredibly high and there's such a tactile quality to everything, mm. it's all so intricate and wonderful. And then everyone I know who's seen it in 48 is kinda like, eh, it all looked really shoddy and it all looked like a Doctor Who episode, and you could see the makeup and you can see them, the effects of yeah. crap. and it's like to me it's sort of like well that's the 48 surely that's
0: showing all that up yeah i I think it is to an extent i still yeah i I don't mind the 48 but it did look in terms of does it look more like lord of the rings in 24 i Mm. the two screenings yeah definitely yeah it definitely looked more like it but i'm willing to I, i kind of feel about 48 frames the way i feel about 3d if it's done well i'm all for it but it's a sometimes food yeah It's not a freaking catch-all like Petro with 3D and CG as well. One of the things I also grew up on in addition to the Tolkien books was the musical Les Miserables. It was one of those things, you know how some people have this thing where uh, when they become a teenager, they instantly stop liking all the things they love as a kid and then when they become an adult, that's when they fall back in love with it, they get the nostalgia back. I didn't have that with any of the things. All the things I loved as a kid, I generally kept loving as a teen. The one thing, the one thing I fell out of love with was Les Mis. And it's only in the last couple of years that I've started to come back around, wow. get back into the music. And so this film hit at the perfect time for me. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic adaptation. I, I think that uh, what really pushes it over the line is the fact that they all sing the songs live on set. I've never seen a yeah. musical with as much emotion in the, in the singing. Uh, I think Jackman is incredible. I think Hathaway is amazing. I think Russell Crowe is in it. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, Okay, it, go, it goes a little long, but um, yeah. but look, I was on board. Um, the, the only weird thing for me is that um, uh, I've always found Eponine. She always broke my heart, and Fantine did nothing for me. In this film, it was completely reversed. Mm. Eponine just left me cold and Funtine was, was what it was all about. But, um, yeah, overall, just really enjoyed this film. I, I like that
1: Hooper, I think it shows considerable
0: balls. I like it when,
1: it when somebody wins Academy Awards and decides to do something really off the beam for their, <laughs> for their follow-up. Like, yeah. just kind of goes, I'm going to try this. Mm. And this is such a high-wire act. Like I, now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of racking my brains. I can only think of one or two other films with completely sung dialogue. On this certainly on this scale, um, on a you know major studio major release like Sweeney Todd Sweeney was Todd, mainly yes, to
0: singing. Mind, yeah. Now the one I don't know, Evita was that all singing? I haven't seen Evita. Well, I haven't seen Evita. But... But... It doesn't seem unusual to me because I grew up going to operas, and mm. so I didn't. I didn't realize this was quite quite new for film.
1: Well, that's the thing. We're sitting and thinking this is cinematic opera, and I've so. I've never really, other than, you know, an opera projected in HD, yeah, 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 I've never seen a film do this with actors. And and Sweeney Todd didn't feel like it pushed it as far as this film does, particularly... And I think the live singing is definitely that reason because the singing is now suddenly part of the performance and when, you know, if somebody's crying or exasperated or whatever and then she's trying to sing a note, sometimes that shows and it's coming right out of that moment and it's not being cleaned up and dubbed over. So I think it's a really... I think it's a, a radically different form of, of cinema musical to what we've seen, and it's incredibly difficult to pull off, and I think the film kind of shows that in terms of I think when it works, it soars. When it doesn't work, often when Russell grows on screen, it's really kind of awkward and kind of you feel like someone's singing at you in a room and you're just kind of like looking like, okay, can I shrink into my seat? But I completely agree with you about Hackman and Jack, um, Hackman, Jackman and Hathaway, <laughs> they're astonishing. Um, I don't know where Hathaway's performance came from. That's Meryl Streep, good, like mm. just something else. Yeah, Crow, I think he's. I think his presence is right for the film. Yeah. I think his general kind of style is good until he begins to I think his singing voice is just completely wrong for this style
2: he struggles he struggles with a lot of his solos. <laughs> he yeah. technically hits the notes well that's, that's the, the... but you can see him thinking about technically yeah. hitting the notes yeah. you can really see him working to make sure that he's getting those notes whereas when you're watching say Jackman mm. do some of his solos he's actually emoting in character mm. yes to whatever they're trying to say and that's the big difference it's like you look at Russell Crowe, and he's trying to sing. He's trying so hard.
1: And you notice he's got one setting. Every single song, he sounds exactly the same.
2: Do you still think Tom Hooper did a good job with this, though? Because I found that almost every creative decision that Tom Hooper made with this film was wrong. Really? And the only reason I still came out liking the film was because I really liked the musical. And it's a testament to the power of the story and the music that I... Didn't come out hating Lemmy's because I hated a lot of stuff that Tom Hooper did with it. I, th- I think that he he chose to do a lot of things in ways that just didn't complement the music. I think the like one of my favourite songs from the musical is, is Master of the House. Mm. It's it's one of my favourite bits, and I was looking forward to that bit, and it was so ham fistedly shot and put together. It was jarring and it was ugly. And I just didn't like his staging of that. I think that one of his strongest creative decisions maybe was choosing to shoot a lot of the solos in unbroken single takes, like close-ups. close, mm-hmm. up, close ups. I think that worked for one or two uh, of the moments in the film. Like Hathaway's... I a Dream to Dream. A dream. Is, yeah, It's a magnificent moment. There's a moment early on with Hugh Jackman doing a solo where he's walking back and forth in a church. I think That's a great moment too. But he just keeps doing this same technique. Every time it cuts to someone singing, it'll just lock on their face for two or three minutes. And I just would have liked a bit more variation in the way that he chose to cover this. I I think that a lot of his decisions were wrong and didn't complement the music. And also he needs to have all his wide-angle lenses taken away from him and he needs to be given a spirit level because <laughs> next time he dashes Because think- it, it felt like him just going, look, Ma, I'm directing. This is yeah. what directors do. They they do crazy camera angles. So I heard talk of the dutch tilt
1: factor. Maybe he'd had a talk with Kenneth Brenner uh, post-Thor, but,
2: <laughs> but I, I didn't
1: find that. There were as many as people seem to be kind of saying. I, I, I was kind of fine with the few moments here and there. Look, I think some of it is probably a little bit overly... See, it's even hard to say overly stylized because I didn't sort of feel that it was. We probably could have gotten more of a sense of, you know, the set design and the, and the world. Um, that was probably a little bit lacking. Yeah. But, I, but as far as his, his camera movements and what have you, I, I, I didn't find any of them too offensive. And I quite liked the getting in on the faces while singing. Some, could some variation be used? Yeah, sure. I, I'm, I'm not totally opposed to you there. But, yeah, look, this is a film I was surprised... Because I've never seen the musical. I'm not generally a fan of this sort of thing. But I found myself surprisingly engaged for a lot of it. And I found, yeah, like when it worked, it worked. I just wished it was half an hour shorter.
0: Boxing Day films round three, ding Disney, <laughs> Wreck It Ralph, the the
1: best Pixar film Disney have ever made. <laughs> mm. I I feel like this year. I mean I know it's been said by others, but I feel like this year Pixar made a Disney movie with Brave, and that disney have made a pixar film with wreck it ralph mm. this is just storytelling at the apex this is the kind of thing pixar do so well it's getting that it's rooting things in you know sort of a pop culture nostalgia flecked world but through but just so grounded in character and ralph i can't recall another time this year i've fallen in love with a with a character on screen as much as i have with ralph in this film like he's just such a beautiful beautiful big lug of a thing and you just want to see him succeed but also vanellope as well um, mm. who we find the Sarah Silverman voice character that he finds in in Sugar Rush there's just such a as a wonderful energy and gorgeousness of spirit to this film but also a great subversion of cliches like every time this thing begins to fall in a traditional Disney hole where you kind of like oh really we're going to that sort of regressive place or whatever the film then flips it on its head and does something really clever it's really self-aware in that regard it kind of knows it's leading you toward the disney cliche and then goes ha fool jack goes the other direction i think it's impeccably voice cast i think the visuals are really appealing and really great and 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 some of that sugar rush stuff is really exciting and really kind of breathtakingly shot as as with the hero's duty stuff as well i just thought it was so smart and so um beautifully told i couldn't recommend it higher you I, guys I agree,
0: think? and I, I reckon that what you say about doing what Pixar does so well is, is coming up with a great concept, but exploring it fully, finding every possible facet of it, and, yeah. and nailing every element of it. I was, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think it's the best animated film of the year. Yep, I well, I agree too. It was It was a real pleasant surprise to see this, and
2: I loved how well realised the concept was in terms of, okay, so you've got, like the classic Toy Story idea that when people turn their back or when you know the arcade closes, all these game characters come to life. But just the little details and the way this was realised in terms of them all kind of having a central station where they travel down the electrical cords, mm. and, yes. and you can you can you can die in your game and come back to life, but you can't die in other games. And I I really liked how well thought through the the pragmatic idea was because yeah. mm. I. I I didn't just think halfway through, oh, but what about this or what about that? It, it was so well realised. They thought of everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did feel that it, it flattened out a little bit in the second half. I, I would have liked it to not so root itself in the Sugar Rush world, mm. but that is a really small nitpick on a genuinely, genuinely enjoyable experience.
1: I almost wanted to see more worlds. It's like, what yeah. else are you guys? That's, yeah. what else That's what got? That's like, what happened yeah. like Sequel. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. You've got
2: to do it. I wanted to see more games. That was It's pretty much, yeah, when you want more, it's not really a criticism, is it? Exactly. Well, it's that
1: time of year. It's December. We've unwrapped all our presents. We're heading into uh, the um, alcoholic imbibement season. It's the end of the year, which means it's time for us anally retentive filmic types to put together our lists of favourite films of the year. And yeah, so I thought we'd uh, share our top five films of 2012. And, you know, being the respectful, lovely people we are, we thought we'd let
2: our guest go first. Thank you. Okay. Top five. These are, these are my five favourite films, and I do like films. So, <laughs> so like, are we going, like
1: you know, there's always an argument, best favourite,
2: best favourite. No? It's, it's, it's five favourite. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I could be arrogant and go, these are the five best films. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, between you and me, these are the best films <laughs> but yeah these, these are my five favorite films um, number five killing them softly i mm. uh, yeah a glorious film it's so up my alley pulpy crime cinema great uh, number four is a film that i only saw at the sydney film festival it didn't even screen at me if it's a film called the comedy i won't get into it and waste time but it's yeah it stars tim and eric from tim and eric's awesome show and james murphy and it's this really acidic dry critique of hipsterism and hopefully it'll hit screens in some form next year. Mm. But it is an amazing film, an amazing character study and a film to pay attention to. Wow. Uh, number three is The Master. I'm Paul Thomas Anderson fanboy. I'm programmed to love his stuff and it wasn't even what I expected from him but it's, it's a great film. It really got under my skin. Number two is a film called Beyond the Hills from Romanian filmmaker Christian Munju. I did not expect to like this film at all, but it punched me in the gut in a way that is... I I search for films that do this to me, and it's it's an amazing piece of cinema, so formally assured. And number one is Holy Motors. Uh, I'm that guy. I loved loved it. I loved Holy Motors so much. Uh, Leos Carax is my king. Like, he... This film made me so excited and joyful and it made me feel like I was a young kid just watching films and getting excited again it it just everything that I want from cinema is in this film and they are my top 5
0: films of 2012 fantastic very nice Mr Lee yes Lee well coming in at number 5 is cabin in the woods because if you're a PTA fanboy, then I'm a Joss Whedon fanboy. He knows that. how to press my buttons Ba-bang! in such a big way. <laughs> as evidenced by number four, which is The Avengers. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> which is some of the most fun I've had in a cinema all year. Number three, The Intouchables. Okay. Wow. The... French film that... The uh, Untouchables sh- beat Whedon. Yeah. it Didn't Joss Whedon do The Untouchables? <laughs> no. <please>. Um, <laughs> Might have been an uncredited rewrite somewhere. In the hands of Hollywood, it would be a mawkish mess, and in the remake, it probably will be, but this is the most perfectly balanced comedy drama I think I've seen in a long time. It was just beautiful. Number two, where Cloud Atlas should be, but it hasn't been released yet, uh, Ooh. is Killing Them Softly. Bang! Yes. Yep. As you say, incredible pulpy film that's really about something. It's a really new angle on the on the mob film, I think. Yeah. And number one, my favourite film of the year is Margaret, the film by Kenneth Lonergan, uh, shot like what five six years ago, something like that. <laughs> Eighteen years ago, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, a small drama, but about these incredibly grand themes, and it really juxtaposes the you know mundane and personal with these. Epic issues and just one of the most perfect films I think I've ever seen. And
2: um, is, are you basing this on the 150 minute theatrical version, or have you seen the longer
0: three hour version as well? I've only seen the theatrical version. By the time this goes to air is and is out in the world, this podcast, I will have seen the extended version. Ah, very good. Yeah. Um, so that's mine. That's my list.
1: I love that I don't hate your number one film this year. Yeah, that's a nice change, right. isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: that <laughs> that works well. My top 5 of the year. I, I it's weird. I feel like it's the most diverse top 5 I've ever put together. It's so all over the shop and doesn't really dictate any sort of taste. My number 5 film is a little indie that screened at Nova for about a week after showing at MIFF, which where I saw it. Is a little tiny sci-fi film called Sound of My Voice. It felt like the aesthetic of lost but made on a tiny budget and much uh, and much more punchy. Um, number four is Wreck It Ralph, the <laughs> aforementioned uh, film, which I said plenty about already. Number three surprised me more than anybody, and it was a documentary about a performance artist mm. that I saw at MIF, and it just cut me in two, and I had no idea it would. And that's Marina Abramovic, the artist is present. Yes, yeah. Number two is uh, a film that, again, screened at MIFF, but is being released here February 2013, which is Michael Haneke's new film, The Palm Door, winning Amour, which is as devastating, quietly devastating, though. It's not a film that you feel demonstrative about. It's just a film that, you you're, you know, it, it stuns you into silence for a half hour after seeing it, uh, about, you know, a, a, a couple dealing with death, uh, impending um, death, and it's just an amazing film. But my number one film of twenty twelve, and this makes for a clean sweep, gentlemen, is Andrew Dominic's Killing Them Softly. Wow. Which is the kind of film that I just eat up. It's the kind it's the reason I'm into cinema and it's the reason I want to make cinema. It's a film that's both so engaging and punchy and raw and gritty as a genre piece, but also is has something to say. It's politically angry. It's not always subtle, but I think there's subtleties under the unsubtleties. I think it's that kind of film. I think that Andrew Dominic is is possibly is arguably Australia's best filmmaker working today. Brad Pitt is is turning into not only a major movie star now but into one of America's best act, screen actors. I just, I just find this film is so much up my alley and says so much about how I feel about the capitalist system of America right now and what it's doing to the world. And yeah, it's. Where best was film it this on, year.
0: on your list, Rich? Five, five. I like that it slowly edged its it way up, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. inadvertently the, the order we did this. <laughs> five, and two, it finally one. Won. It finally got to number one. <laughs> All right, Rich. Please tell us whom have you picked for your Helen's for hyphen. It's filmmaker of the month.
2: Very apt introduction to Oliver Stone is my filmmaker of the month. <laughs> is good. it because the introduction was ham- it was unsubtle and bombastic? And uh, yeah, 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 pretty much. Is that that, that would be how Oliver Stone would would frame that introduction. Probably over the course of a long three hour film. Yeah, what's of conspiracy is about when you put the intonations in? And yeah,
1: <laughs> definitely.
2: But I I love Oliver Stone. I've loved Mm. him for a long time. He was a pretty influential filmmaker to me as I was growing up throughout the 90s. Um, And I think he's had a really interesting career. I think he's had a lot of ups and downs in his career. And it's been fascinating to just go through his filmography from beginning to end. And see how important a filmmaker he's been. I think he's been really significant to a lot of other filmmakers. And some of the stuff he did, particularly in the 80s and early 90s, is really, really significant for American film. And I, I think that Oliver Stone kinda maybe maybe gets ignored a bit these days and, and thought of as a relic. But I think it's it's gonna be really fun to look through his whole filmography and I'm really keen to see what you guys so, think. Of so so when did you first get interested in him? Like what's the why does, why do you think he connects with you? Well, it was probably the, the early nineties, around the, the JFK to natural born killers stretch which, you know, I would have, was young then, I was very early teens, and these were really stylistically influential films. I'd never seen films that had done what he was doing, and and it tapped into just everything that I loved. And then, even though his output did drop off in the late 90s and early 2000s, I think that he's a fun filmmaker to look at because he he authentically stands for something. And And I think nowadays things have got a bit cynical and a bit postmodern and and often filmmakers will hedge their bets if they're trying to make a point with Mm. a film and oliver stone does not hedge his bets he'll he'll make (laughs) it very clear where he stands with his films and i find that really refreshing especially looking back it's really refreshing to see a filmmaker that goes this is my point of view this is what i'm trying to say and i'm
0: not i'm not stepping back on it Hmm. Found it interesting watching his stuff in order and seeing him find his feet because he did, he did a student film called Last Year in Vietnam. It was like a Renee film. It was just you know war footage narrated, um, and he's obviously have you seen it? Yeah. No. Oh, wow.
2: Okay, that was one that I couldn't see. Yeah. Mm. Oh, okay. Well,
0: yeah, there's it's online. I'll put a link on the on the website. But he goes from that into films like. Seizure, which as we all found was impossible to track down. Even I, the no, great
1: Lee Zachariah no, no, could not track I, down.
0: I, I saw seizure. You saw it? Yes. Yeah, because oh. I know who had a copy and I asked him
2: too damn late. There, there are copies floating around. But Oliver Stone himself. So, Seizure was 1974. It was yep. his first feature film, and he himself, Oliver Stone himself, has bought the rights to this film, oh. and he is withholding the. DVD <laughs> it's a fear release. and desire. Yeah, still. he does not situation. want
0: this film to come out. Well, having it, seen the trailer, it <laughs> looks insane. It, it is insane. It actually looks like really appealingly insane, though.
2: I, I think it is. I think it's a great. It's, it's a, a horror great writer whose film. characters manifest in real life or something? Is yeah, that... yeah. So it's yeah. basically this horror writer. It's it's almost like a a, a meta home invasion slasher movie. So it's, it's, it's a horror writer and he gets lots of friends over to his house, country house, and then all of a sudden three people that have escaped from an insane asylum burst through the window and tie them all up and slowly start killing them. And these three people are three characters from this horror writer's novels. And it just, it gets really bizarre and really meta and... Herve Villachez mm. is in it, playing a character called Spider. He's like this little mini psycho killer. But he occasionally, when he gets really evil, he's overdubbed with Oliver Stone's voice. Whoa. It's it's a bizarre. It's it's a pretentious, messy, overambitious film, but I it's it's a I think it's an amazing little curio that it's it's hard to track down, but some VHS copies did float around and, and they mm. are floating around the internet with mm. rips of. And I don't think it's it's untoward to get something that is totally, it's unavailable.
0: You mm. can't buy this film. Mm. So track but that, it down. So that's 74. That's 74. His next feature is 81's The Hand, another horror film, less crazy. Yes. But, but you know, he's he's still dabbling in genre. And it's not until 86 that he makes Salvador. So these are huge stretches of time. Yeah, you, And Salvador is when you start to see the Oliver Stone we know and love. Yeah, that's... The it's guy. interesting. The hand has stuff. Again, though, there is this ambition there. You know, like it is, it,
1: it, it looks like a sort of a cruddy drive in knockoff until, you know, he, he's sort of dealing with some psychological issues there. There's stylistic flashes of what Stone would do later. There's the whole black, it goes to black and white whenever we're seeing. A perspective from inside somebody's head mm. Which, you know, he does in things like JFK And Nixon and Natural Born Killers and, yeah. But it's that thing but, about it being It's almost like The Shining in a way It's that thing about, well, the, the hand is what's going on in his head like that's what he's thinking you know what I mean like that's his or is it or is it? <laughs> or is it as the ending sort of but I yeah I just thought that was the psychosis completely
2: taking over but it's but- strange because at the same point in time he's writing really credible screenplays Well, so read- before The Hand he wrote the screenplay for Scarface but this is what gets me he won an academy award three
1: yes. years before writing and directing The Hand hmm. for his screenplay for Midnight Express yes and Midnight Express as well yeah um, and that was kind of what gave him carte blanche- like gave gave him sort of a name in Hollywood. So it's kind of, yeah, seizure in 74. Then he wrote um, the Midnight Express four years later, won an Oscar. And then there's these two years afterwards where it's sort of nothing. And he wrote Conan the Barbarian. Yes, Conan uh, as well. Yeah. With John Millius the year after making The Hand. Mm. There's clearly a level of ambition and kind of a stylistic kind of thing that's beginning to bubble in
2: stone. You see traces like that. But I think, like you said, Lee, like I think, Salvador, Salvador mm. in 1986, that's when we start to see the, the politically motivated mm. Stone that we're yeah. kind of used to. It's Salvador, I always found it a pretty messy film and it's mm. kind of yeah. a bit all over the shop, but it's got a great performance from James Woods and it's kind of like Fear mm. and Loathing in South America.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: It's so inspired it's by very Hunter. gonzo
1: early on, isn't it? Yeah. But how much is Richard... I just kept looking at, at Woods' performance as Richard Boyle mm. and thinking this is how Stone sees himself as a filmmaker. Yeah. yeah, I
0: can see that. Yeah, the autobiography. Yeah. like
1: such a self portrait of Stone and almost a mission statement of this is who I am now. And he is from that point mm. onwards. You know, it's like, I am the guy that's going to get in your face and tell you the shit you don't want to hear <laughs> yeah. and be really charming about it. But you all kind of hate me because I'm kind of. Uh, You know, I'm too forthright. And, you know, it's like I'm too honest with this world. And you can all go and get fucked because I'm going to tell you anyway. Mm. And I'm going to be crazy (laughs) and get drunk and high as I do it. And that seems to be the way. Sounds
2: like Oliver Stone. Exactly.
1: So not all of it works, but it shows – I thought it really did well in showing the reality of a situation that a lot of Americans wouldn't have been – or a lot of people in the world outside of South America wouldn't have been too familiar with at the time. And that's one of the things Stone's really good at as well
0: is encouraging thought and conversation. And that's something we'll kind of get to as well. Well, he starts getting biographical and autobiographical at that point, because yeah, as, as you say, I like that take that that is how he sees himself. That same year, Platoon, you know, so informed by his own experiences yeah. of, of war in Vietnam, it's like an actual autobiographical film. Yeah,
2: watching it again, I I didn't realize how insular and subjective a film it is. I didn't mm. it it never expands outside of the immediate war experience. So it it begins with Charlie Sheen. Choppering into the war zone and ends with Charlie Sheen choppering mm. out. And it's very much his POV isn't And it? some of the the battle scenes almost feel like horror mm. scenes. It becomes really abstract and chaotic. And it's watching it again, it, it didn't strike me as one of my favorite Vietnam War films. I, I don't think it's as effective as Full Metal Jacket or even Apocalypse Now, mm. but it it was an important film in terms of what it did for getting that psychology of of the war experience out there. Mm. And then with Wall Street the very next year, using Sheen again and pitting him off against a good guy and a bad guy character, Mm. there's this really interesting kind of similarity in the structure to Platoon and Mm, Wall Street. Yeah. So it's all really about putting this innocent character in between two forces, a good force and an evil force. They're trying to ideologically
0: win him over. Yeah, Mm. and and
2: dragging him to either side. And
0: What Wall Street kicks off is his interest in conspiracy theories, but in particular, the mechanics of the backroom deal and the corruption. And... That's even though he's not saying there is a vast conspiracy on Wall Street. He's looking behind the closed doors and he's saying this is kind of what's going on. This the, is how the game's being fixed. Yeah, and yeah. that informs everything from you know JFK to South of the Border. You yeah, know, yeah. Everything he does from that point on is really informed by I that just, idea. Platoon was a film
1: I never really connected with years
0: ago even when I
1: was really into Stone during the 90s it was never a film I could really watch in one sitting it always kind of but this time I, I felt like I'd come to it for the first time and I thought it was tremendous I was, I think I really liked that subjective point of view and it didn't feel like it, it it's one of the least melodramatic of Stone's films I mean there are a couple of moments like the, sh- the shooting of Barnes being one of them but, but for the most part the film's quite matter of fact yeah and there's and it's so relentlessly ugly about and so de- completely de-glamorizes the wartime experience and really puts you in there and you really feel it really feels authentic it feels like this is written by a guy who was there yeah um yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas Apocalypse Now is kind of this weird psychological fantasia. I mean, Apocalypse Now is one of my favourite films, but I think it's a completely different beast. Yeah. Um, this is just so much... And even the narration, you start thinking the narration's quite high-minded and then you suddenly think, no, this is how Oliver Stone speaks. And Oliver Stone is this guy. Mm. And he was that fresh-faced kid at 19 in Vietnam. And suddenly it just has all this kind of weight.
2: And I just thought it was tremendous. Well, I think something recurring that you're going to hear me probably say a few times is... um. Subtlety is overrated in like Oliver Stone. He's not subtle. And, and oh, rewatching God, no. Platoon, it, it, I, I had to laugh when the, the climactic kind of narration from Sheen was something like, I think now looking back, we didn't fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. And the enemy was in us. And it just kind of was like Stone going, in case you missed that yeah. Let me just tell you that, yeah. yeah, this is the theme going on. Do you think maybe that was a studio note? I don't know. Well, I, see. I don't mind that, though. I, I, yeah. I don't, Sometimes I think that making your point explicit, especially when dealing with mass mainstream audiences, mm. is a good thing. And I think that's why Stone is such a successful filmmaker, because he, he doesn't shroud his mm. points in ambiguity. He makes it very clear, yeah, this not is the point there. of this film. And even if I've got kind of maybe a metaphorical theme going on there... I'm going to tell you exactly what that is a metaphor for. Yeah, I'm going to d- make that
0: clear. I'm going to flash it up in black and white yeah. in between. And yeah, I find yeah, that refreshing. A, I find it, it really refreshing. Yeah. On top of all those themes we talked about, there is one other that, that sort of ties in the conspiracy theory idea. A lot of it comes from talk radio, which he didn't write. You know, Eric Bogosian mm. wrote yep. it based on his own play. There is a line in that which is "What's wrong with America?" And that is basically. Oliver Stone's big question. Yeah. You know, he's obviously a patriot. He obviously loves his country and part of that is questioning and, and boy, mm. does he? Mm. But that's, it's almost like film by film, he's introducing the themes that will come in and inform yeah. the rest of his career. So that, yeah, talk radio in 88, what is wrong with America? And, Born on the 4th of July is where that all sort of coagulates in 89.
1: Yeah, I think talk radio is kind of fascinating. Like, I think it's an almost apocalyptic view of how America has... Americans have grown estranged from hum, from one another mm. and from humanity. And that nobody... Can have a conversation anymore, and it's uh, and everything's been kind of reduced to a media kind of commodity. And the only way people can connect is by this kind of weird insult culture, or this where a pra- praise is given and an insult is given in the same breath, and that nobody can really relate. And as for Born on the Fourth of July, I didn't get to revisit this one, but I remember loving it.
2: This was the actually the first film that I rewatched when kind of starting to dig back through Oliver Stone's stuff, and. And what a film! Like, mm. I, I don't know if you rewatched it. I did. You did. Yeah. Like, I it was. I think this is one of his most purely successful films. I think he fuses the personal and the political in a near perfect way mm. with this film. I think it's a perfect companion to Platoon mm. in terms of expanding out of the war experience into the the effects of that war experience on the soldiers when they get home, and it's it's a it it almost adds a wholeness to Platoon by working with it, by showing one side versus the other. Well, I that's think. what's
1: interesting. It's almost like he, he kind of had this plan. You know, it's like yeah. he sort of said that Platoon is such a small, subjective yeah. view, and it's like, I can explore the bigger picture in another film.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it makes Platoon more complete, in a way. And then Tom Cruise is magnificent. Yep. I, I don't care what anyone says. And, like, <laughs> Tom Cruise is a damn good actor, yep. and yeah, he's amazing
0: in this, this film. This is one of his best roles. and yeah, And I think... Stone uses Americana in this film to devastating effect. It's like, I know, I feel like Michael Bay does what he does but without the irony. You know, Stone <laughs> is both celebrating this Americana and saying, look at how infested it is, look at how fake it is. How uh, diluted we it's are. It's really, yeah, it really hit me hard this time at how much, just how much he's not celebrating it. Well, it's interesting. Did you, because I think one of the weak links for me was John Williams' score
2: in it. Mm. But since you just made that point maybe maybe it fe- maybe stone was using that ironically maybe cuz john williams score is so on the nose and syrupy at times that i guess you could say that there was kind of maybe a cynical leave it to beaver style comment mm. that he's making by framing especially those kind of pre-war childhood scenes in in such a hazy glow of nostalgia well, with it's Stone's lack
0: of subtlety, you never know. Yeah, well, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Here's where I don't quite get his mind. one's The Doors. <laughs> Is he... Tearing down Jim Morrison's legend or celebrating it? I'm trying to... Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Because he because he basically presents... And Val Kilmer's brilliant. Yeah. But he basically presents Jim Morrison as the biggest shit that ever walked the earth. The most pretentious
0: <laughs> wanker <laughs> yeah. ever. But I don't know if Stone likes that or not. But I Stone
1: love, seems to love the music and seems to trip mm. out on the imagery and seems to kind of... Well, well, the film, the film it seems to be kind of more in Ray Manzarek's kind of corner, isn't it, than the, mm-hmm. the, the um,
2: Kyle McLaughlin's character? It's, it's strange. I had the biggest turnaround of any opinion um, on re-watching The Doors. I thought The Doors was an absolute failure mm-hmm. all through the 90s and then thinking back and then rewatching it. I really dug it. <laughs> I really liked it. And I don't know whether it's because my opinion on Jim Morrison has changed since, like, I'm not a young kid idolising... Jim Morrison anymore I actually think that Jim Morrison was kind of a drunk and and you know a talented drunk but a drunk uh, yeah <laughs> well he kind of he stumbled across celebrity and yeah. but I I think that the experimental nature of the film it was really fascinating to see what Stone was trying to do the whole film plays like one long montage it feels like you're listening to an album and he kind of uses biopic cliches in a really overt way as just kind of trigger points Mm. to Mm. throw some story in before he goes on these longer elaborate kind of evocative montages that are usually just Jim Morrison stumbling around drunk. Mm. But I really found this amazing. And my rating of it has gone through the roof compared to what I used to think of it. And, you know, it's got Crispin Glover as Andy Warhol. Yeah. How can you not like that? That was
0: inevitable. Inevitable. That had to happen at some point. Someone (laughs) did. But his next film... I'm going to call it, I think it's his masterpiece. Yeah. And he thinks that as well, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, that same year, JFK. What uh, a year. What a But that's year interesting, isn't it? Go. This yeah, is yeah. the year
1: with the doors in JFK. It's the year that he really started letting his stylistic freak flag fly. Yeah. And started trying so many new things with the, and really pushing that
0: visual envelope. He's got this new kinetic style mm. that's just that unlike anything, anything he's done films. before. Yeah, and it's... It, he, you can feel him being freed up by it, just to say, I can show anything in any way I want and yeah. throw the rule book out the window. Yeah. And playing with structure and form and, yeah, and and cycling
1: mega name actors in and out of things too. You know, well, like, just
2: I, I can't even imagine how significant that would have been uh, for him uh, in 1991 because The Doors and JFK are two of the biggest kind of cultural touchstones that America has. And in that same year, this guy, Oliver Stone, was allowed huge budgets to <laughs> yeah. essentially make his own subjective revisionist take on both these stories. And both of these films, in their own way, are really stylistically audacious. Like, mm. In different ways, too. That was what was really interesting. JFK was a really strange film to watch. It's so well-paced, but at least two-thirds of it is just people telling stories and yeah. then flashing back to those stories and then flashing back within those stories. And it feels like a documentary at mm. times, but a, a weird conspiratorial revisionist documentary. It, yeah. I, I loved it. I, and it felt, it reminded me of like maybe if you're having a night with like this crazy guy who's on cocaine and he get, he's getting more suspicious <laughs> as the night goes on and like he keeps telling you stories and the stories are getting more and more absurd that is what the experience of watching JFK yeah. for three hours is like. That it it starts balanced and then it slowly kind of gets more and more paranoid. I I would probably agree with you. It is his masterpiece. It, it's it, one of his best films. It's
1: almost like without Stone, I don't feel like we'd have Michael Moore. Like it's almost <laughs> that sort of that you know sort of massive left wing shit stirrer mm. who's you know all of what's in the film may not be the truth. A lot of it may be just speculation, but it gets people talking and thinking about these things and it ends up getting people mobilised and people start digging and asking questions, uh, which is incredibly valuable in a society to, to, to
0: examine these and ask these questions. I almost feel like they, those two guys come from the same place. So in 93, he finishes off his self-described Vietnam trilogy with a film that actually focuses on the Vietnamese, which for US film is quite a brave move. Um, they don't usually do that admirably restrained, uh, given JFK sort of clearly frees him up into this new crazy style of filmmaking. Mm. He actually goes back to a much simpler style of filmmaking. Very stylish, though. There's a
1: lot of you know, beautiful panoramas. Mm. But, yeah, it's a much more meditative film than what we're used to from him. I think that, from what I can recall, there, are the, you know, some of it's unsubtle, but some of it's very kind of, yeah, very, very um, introspective. Yeah, it's interesting. It didn't have the impact on me that a lot of his others do. But I think it was certainly worthy, but it doesn't feel overly worthy, which was really great, and the opposite to some of the stuff he'll make later.
2: So with Heaven and Earth in 93, you could say that he kind of tied off the, the trilogy, mm. but I don't really see it as a necessary film. I, I see it as kind of his first week film, And and thematically I understand why he wanted to add that colour and perspective, but... You know, Stone doesn't have the same insight into the, the life of a Vietnamese woman that he does as the life of a combat soldier, and That's I think you can really see point. that in the film. Yeah. Visually, it's it's elegant, but um, it's it's not really. I think it's it's one of his, his first really uninteresting films for me. But he quickly followed that up with the very with, in the very next year with Natural Born Killers, which I don't think it's too much to say
0: is one of the more controversial films of the '90s. It yeah. is, uh, we, we had many debates, my friends and I, as to whether it was a perfect film or an unwatchable film, <laughs> and I still don't know. I know it's one of them. I, I know, yeah. I've seen this film three times, each time, this is one of the, it's almost
1: unique, In every time I watch this film I have a different reaction to it. I've I've rated it everything from a 3 out of 10 to an 8 out of 10 at different times.
2: You never got higher than an 8?
1: No, 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 Really? Quite. Okay. No, it's just... I'd rate it
2: anywhere from an 8 to a 10. Whoa! <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I love it. Is it your favourite of his?
2: Personally, it is my personal favorite. Yeah. I, I think it's an amazing film. I I don't even know how it exists. Mm. Like I don't know how yeah, the film got bizarre, made man. by it's, a major studio. No, it's less. formally. I even watching it recently again. I've never seen anything like it since. Like no one has taken that visual language and done anything since like that. And thematically, it's it's weirdly hypocritical as well. It's almost like a perfect American film. Mm. <laughs> it's. it's a, a, a product and a critique yeah. of yeah. violent media, and and that's part of the reason why I love it. People that think it's hypocritical <laughs> and contradictory, when they put their argument out there, I usually just smile and go, "Yeah, that's kind of still why I love it." Yeah, because it's it's per, it's bombastic, it's over the top, it's morally questionable. <laughs> uh, it, all these things make it a really exciting film to watch. I
1: think I think me being a Tarantino obsessive, I'm kind of I always kind of have that. But you completely butchered his script. But but it's it's such a. <laughs> You're on a, Team Tarantino for that one. Yeah. Um,
0: but it's such uh, as you say, it's such a formally audacious film. I wonder if uh, the reason he did Nixon in '95 was because he's the now the American president filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, won't be the last one he makes either. But it kind of, as much as I enjoy Nixon, I find it a really fascinating insight into into how this guy may have ticked. Uh, it still kind of feels like an obligation. Really? Yeah, to me a little bit. Well, Did you, did you feel that, jumping ahead, did you feel that with W as well? W even more so. Yeah. It feels, like, feels a like a photocopy w. of a photocopy. Well, w felt even more redundant. Yeah. Than, like, like, I, I think it's a very fun film, but that's kind of my problem with it, is, like with W, is that it just feels fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, just a showcase. It film. feels well, well. It's than re-enact those scenes. Yeah. And Whereas like, yeah.
1: Nixon feels on message. Nixon still feels like the guy who's working through the 60s. Okay. It's still the guy the, um, who's made all these films that we're talking about. And it's it's kind of weird I guess because he goes super contemporary with Natural Born Killers mm. and then he kind of goes he kind of backs up to the 60s again. I feel like almost if it wouldn't probably have felt as much of an obligation had the two films come out. In different order. I think, like, so I think this it's, had followed it, Heaven and Earth and The Doors and JFK. It had
0: seemed perfectly logical. We're also yeah. watching Hopkins do an impression, whereas in JFK, it's a guy we've never heard of investigating. Yeah. It's easier to buy that. I thought Hopkins was, Hopkins was pretty good in this. He though. is pretty I good, mean- but... There's only so much you can look and sound like Nixon, and that kind of turned me on a little bit. Okay, yeah, I I struggle with Nixon. I think it's a really clever film, and
2: it's incredibly dense. Oh, is it? But I find it? it really hard to enjoy. And and every time I try to watch it, I kind of just get exhausted by it. And and I really find it hard to connect and get into it. I can really appreciate what it's doing, and I think it's clever what he's yeah. doing with Nixon in terms of fragmenting time and. It's 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 almost more revisionist than JFK in many ways, what he's mm. doing with Nixon. Yeah. But, yeah, I just I can't enjoy it. I've got, this
1: is the first time I've seen Nixon. It was the one I didn't see during the 90s at the cinemas. I really, really enjoyed it. I found myself kind of feeling... I, I guess because I'd watched a couple of modern Stone films before this and this kind of like, oh, this is why I love Oliver Stone. <laughs> it's all that crazy, you know, stylistic... Flights of fancy and wild speculation and basically just flat out calling Nixon a mama's boy and and just really kind of stirring the shit and being really kind of brazen about it. Um, But also has clearly done a shit ton of research and clearly has some people who are pretty
2: highly placed helping him out with this research. Please tell me that you're a fan of u turn which was probably stone's most genre effort a few yeah, years later in 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good it's, good. it's, it's we can all be friends <laughs> it's one
1: of those things it's like i love you know you love to see a big filmmaker you know particularly making the kind of important weighty films that he was making just do a wacky genre just have fun yeah yeah yeah.
0: Uh, and i love that it still has his conspiracy theory stuff there's a big conspiracy (laughs) within this small town (laughs) this random small town it's it's fantastic look it's a hugely enjoyable film Um, and so is any given sunday i love any given sunday and even i haven't had a chance to rewatch it so
2: i'm I'm relying on in memory of not particularly liking it really in the
0: day but it, it holds up. I think it really it? Yeah. holds up. Yeah, I rewatched it the other day, and yeah,
2: 150 minutes.
0: Uh, not if you watch the director's cut; it's uh, five thousand minutes. <laughs> um, but still, still a lot of fun. Look, it's got a lot of energy. Uh, it's got a lot of great star turns. But I'm, I'm an NFL fan. I'm mm. a huge oh, fan okay. of
1: American See, football. I, I'm
2: not. So that
1: world interests me anyway. And it's again. He's looking at conspiracies. He's looking at it's that Wall Street thing. He's looking about how the game is played behind the game and how everybody's being played. Pacino's screaming a lot. A little bit, but he's a coach, so it kind of fits. <laughs> um, I think it's riveting.
0: I think, with the exception of the two documentaries he made, Commandante about Castro, and south of the border about basically all the other South American presidents, save so for his two TV documentaries about. Fidel Castro uh, looking for Fidel and Persona Non Grata. Well, aside from those, I think what we get into post Any Given Sunday is something of a decline. Something. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm being kind. But what, 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 I, what I see is what, what I was sort of hinting at with Nixon, which is mo- mostly comes into play here, which is what are the sorts of films that Oliver Stone feels he should be making. Yeah. Yeah. There's the Alexander the Great film there's world trade center there's w there's the wall street sequel these are all films that feel like him trying to do oliver stone and trying to emulate his earlier successes and it feels like all the energy is sucked out even though there is some good in these films except for world trade center Um, or alexander (laughs) or alexander seriously (laughs) how how many shots how
1: much you make a film about one of the you know this Conqueror of countries, and literally half the film is Anthony Hopkins walking, leading a bunch of students in circles, talking,
2: telling <laughs>
0: stories. There's at least four different versions of Alexander <laughs> yeah. as well. He yeah. seems to, and the one I saw was all four pasted together. It felt like, oh, okay, yeah, so literally real time of Alexander's wife, yeah, pretty yeah. much. But I don't, like one thing you can never say about all of stone, you know, love or hate uh, natural born killers, you can never say he's dull, and yet. By, by the time he gets to World Trade Center, it's really dull. It's really well, boring stuff.
2: Uh, I find it really interesting because World Trade Center, W, and Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, uh, three films that he made, and they're all dealing with current events. Mm. And he's, he's said obliquely in interviews that it was a conscious shift to kind of deal with history as it's written and as it's happening, rather than the way that he was kind of maybe looking at it through a filter of the past. Mm. And I think it was a mistake, and I think it—they're it, failed experiments. If you, if you, you want to think about it that way, Well, it's I almost think. like that hindsight helps. It, it yeah, yeah. Well, it—it's too soon. Yeah, and especially World Trade Center and W—they're films that. You can almost feel like it's Oliver Stone but neutered. Yeah. There, there's no edge to it and there, it makes the films almost redundant. And
1: even the style is really,
2: really flat Yeah,
1: and really perfunctory and they all just look like any other film, whereas Oliver Stone films used to be visually dynamic.
2: Well, it's also worth noting that those three films he didn't write as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's a strange shift away. And for a guy that basically cut his teeth as a writer, I find it odd that he... he palmed off those three films. And hmm. I'm sure he tinkered with the screenplays, but he wasn't the core creative mind behind yeah. them. And I, and you can see that. You can see that in the conventional frameworks to all three of those films. Absolutely, yeah. They don't play in any interesting ways, no. which makes me even more excited and happy when The Savages came out this year. Yes.
0: And it felt like the energy was back. Yeah, Love It or Hate It, uh, that's another one that is... yeah. Oliver Stone is back. You yeah. feel like the Stone of old. Is there? I, I, I remember sitting in the cinema watching it, going, "This is a bit over the top, isn't it?" Oh, wait, it's Oliver Stone. It's Oliver stone. This is a little restrained, isn't it? <laughs> even so. Even so, the energy is back in there. Look, I, I actually really enjoyed this film, you know, just because it was him back to his former self. Oh, it, I, I was
2: giggling like a little <laughs> yeah, boy with savages. It, it was so much fun for me, and it felt like Oliver Stone. It felt like Oliver Stone making an early 90s film. It oh. felt like Oliver Stone making True Romance or something. Oh, wow. With all these like... And it still had kind of these nice political undertones discussing like the drug trade and the politics of the odd kind of decriminalisation of medical marijuana mm. and things like that were, were interesting additions to it. But Savages is... is it's a sugary movie. It's it's Oliver Stone just giving you a nice it's soundtrack. u like U-turn, really, isn't it? It is. A little bit, yeah. It yeah. is, and it's got an energy to it, and it even has a, a, a contentious climax
0: that is I know it? has bothered a lot of people. I actually was spoiled for that going in, and it's the one time I've enjoyed being spoiled because it might have annoyed me had I seen oh, it. Oh, really? First. Yes. And knowing it was coming, I loved it. To
2: me, it's like... um it could either be a cherry on top or a nail in the coffin if you're not liking it or if you're liking it it'll either just send you over the top (laughs) in either way Mm. and I was really liking it and it just sent me over the top (laughs) in the most positive way when it did what it did I I was like yes but I know that some people have wanted to walk out at that exact moment that I I was going yes so So this is
1: the first time since any given Sunday like that's where I felt yeah, felt, that felt like the last real Oliver Stone film yeah. to me. So, Savages
2: picks it up again after. There's it, some energy in back there, and, and I feel like earth. I don't know what he could do next, but he still might have a really great film left in him. It, it's not over for him. That's that's what made me excited about watching The Savages was the future of Oliver Stone. Exactly, yeah. and he's
1: doing the Untold History of the United States for Showtime, which is again him politically shit-stirring again. Yeah, it's a project
2: so- that he's actually been working on for five years. A, a ten-part, ten-hour history series of, of America over the last 60, 70 years. And it's 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 stone shit-stirring again. It's it's revisionist, it's contentious, it's provocative, and it's fun. And it's impeccably well-made. too. So mm. Really well-constructed history series. I, if you're a history junkie, you will love this show. And you, if you're a history junkie, you'll probably get pissed off by this show, <laughs> which Oliver Stone would be happy to hear.
0: So it sounds like he's got his mojo
1: back. He is hoping.
0: He is hoping. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us this month. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll see the rest of you next year. My precious. (laughs) That'll do.